Hi, I'm Allison Kulo. Hi, I'm Roger Goldman. Welcome to Mountain Money. Franklin Roosevelt's presidency is remembered by the public largely for the social programs of the New Deal and for a successful prosecution of the U.S. involvement in World War II. But perhaps as significant was the fundamental change in the role government plays in the regulation of financial markets during the Roosevelt administration. Simply put, prior to Roosevelt, there was not much of a role at all. Author Diana Henriquez takes a deep dive into how and why the regulatory regime that basically exists today came into being over the strenuous objection of some rich and powerful foes in her new book, Taming the Street, The Old Guard, The New Deal, and FDR's Fight to Regulate Capitalism. We're very lucky to have her, have her join us this morning. Good morning and welcome to Mountain Money. Good morning. It's a delight to be here. Then one of the things that struck me about the book was how many instances there were of details of really relatively intimate conversations among the characters and the scenes that you set. It, it sort of made me wonder, you know, why did you choose to write the book and how long did it take to do the research that got you into all these rooms? Yeah, and you know, your your point, Ron, which was exactly why I chose to write the, write the book, that this extremely important story, and I thought a dramatic and interesting story, was being lost in the shadows of history. I mean, Roosevelt's uh, entire administration was so eventful uh, and, and so epic in shaping world history that this piece of it, which for him was the heart and soul of the New Deal when he came into office, had kind of gotten gotten lost in the, in the shadows. So I wanted to bring it uh, back to the forefront so that people would understand how much we benefited as a country um, by these reforms, which now are nearly 90 years old. As for the research, well, it was a bit derailed by the by the pandemic. It became a bit of a puzzle uh, trying to find uh, the pieces that I needed, uh, specifically the dialogue. I mean, you pointed out the, the intimacy of the scenes. I don't make anything up. I mean, if I put words in somebody's mouth or thoughts in somebody's head in the book, it's because I've got some documentation to support that. But it, it became a, a challenge as archives closed, libraries closed, tracking down long out of print books that I could purchase online, uh, you know, digging up archives that were available online digitally. Um, so it was, it was a challenge. Fortunately, I was able to build on some of the research I'd done in earlier books, but, um, but it, it, it was a, a treasure hunt. You chose to frame the narrative by focusing on four individuals, Dick Whitney, Bill Douglas, Joe Kennedy, and FDR. Why did you adopt this approach? Well, I didn't originally start out that way, Allison. Um, uh, you know, I thought I would just do it, you know, a strict chronology and whoever was on stage at the moment would be on stage. But as I, as I continued drafting, I, I began to see, I really wanted this to be a reader-friendly book. Um, I'm a huge fan of financial history, and I will read any form of financial history I can find. But most financial histories are written, sadly, by academics and largely for academics or by economists and technicians for their peers. And I wanted a book that would be really reader-friendly for the general reader. And I thought building the story by weaving these four men's lives and actions together, I could accomplish that. But it also served the purpose of kind of underscoring something I firmly believe as a, as a uh, amateur scholar of history, which to show how important individual impact can be. That four men working 
at cross purposes sometimes, working together, uh, we're able to have such an incredible impact on how we operate in managing our money today. You know, it's funny that you bring up the readability point. Before the show, Alice and I were talking about how unusual it was to find a book about a topic like this that was so engaging and so re- so readable. And it was largely, I think, because of the choice you made to follow these these characters and the adventures that they had. I want to get into some discussion about these characters, but let's set the scene a bit by talking about, you know, the sort of what Wall Street was like in the wild, wild east prior to regulation. What- <laughs> Well, I love the way you, you phrase that, the wild, wild east. It was indeed, although in those days, of course, there was a stock exchange in almost every major city. Um, but it was, um, it, it was wild. Um, prices were routinely manipulated by insiders forming cartels and pools that would secretly drive up the price of a stock and then dump it on unsuspecting investors. Um, these insiders routinely traded on information they'd gotten from boardrooms or, or top executives. Uh, they told lies to sell stocks and bonds. It was just as bluntly as that, just told lies. Um, they abused holding company structures to shortchange both, both bondholders and shareholders. And they bought favors and tolerance for these practices by bribing politicians and even bribing financial journalists, to, to my historic shame. Um, <laughs> and there were massive conflicts of interest all through the system that we would never even tolerate today. So it was, you know, from today's standpoint, it looked like a criminal enterprise. And yet these were uh, abuses that were uh, not only widely practiced, but they were universally tolerated with virtually no um, pushback from government regulators at all. And one of the things that I noticed in the book that you talked about abuses was the way they abused bankruptcy uh, in, during, this, during this period as well. Yeah, it, it, it was... Uh, really a hidden um, uh, scandal. There were a few instances prior to FDR's uh, coming into office where bankruptcy games had gotten uh, exposed and created huge scandals. Um, And one of those actually was brought, was what brought William O. Douglas uh, onto the stage as a public figure. But the real abuses in the bankruptcy process were that the insiders and the biggest bondholders and investors, sometimes even the underwriters who had brought this this shabby company to the public would would simply control the outcome behind the scenes to make sure that they got paid whether or not small uh, creditors or employees or uh, taxing authorities got paid so it was a uh, this you know it there was a big insiders only rule hanging over the whole financial landscape and that was one of the most abusive examples of it because it was a process that was so opaque to the general public general investors really could not see through the bankruptcy court doors to see what was going on and how they were being shortchanged can you share a bit about how fdr was able to get the exchange and securities laws passed in the early 30s yeah, it, it, it was a challenge. It, um, now, it's true that unlike today, he had a very strong majority, party majority in Congress. But in those days, you know, the parties were hardly uh, as uh, homogeneous as we think of them today. There were very conservative Democrats opposed to business regulation. There were very progressive Republicans hardly in favor of business regulation. So he had to um, weave coalitions across the aisle at every 
every step of the way. He also relied, as I describe in the book, on brilliant draftsmanship. He brought the brightest and, and smartest minds uh, into the uh, to the table to help uh, draw up these laws, um, and in a way that he he knew that they could get through Congress. He relied on um, the legendary congressional figures like Sam Rayburn to get these bills through the committees and, and around all of these potential obstructions. Um, I had a lot of fun in describing some of the political uh, fights that he, uh, that he waged. But the key thing, really, Allison, was that he never gave up. He refused. He he made compromises. Certainly, he uh, you know he he cut his losses where where he needed to, and he compromised where he had to. Um, but he never stopped pushing to get these reforms in, and I think that's what tells us how important they were to him. Yeah, you sort of come away from some of those stories realizing what an extraordinary politician he was. You know, his skill set was really really unique. Yeah, it was. He was a charmer. He really was. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, of the four figures, the one that's probably least known to the public today is Dick Whitney. Um, if you asked me who he was before this weekend, I would have had no, no idea. Can you tell the audience a bit about him, including the role he played in opposing regulation, and then a bit about what happened to him in the end? Yeah, I don't really give too much of my story away, but I'll be happy to do that. Yeah, uh, Richard Whitney was uh, was the younger of two brothers. His older brother, George Whitney, became a very powerful figure in the firm of J.P. Morgan and Company. And Dick Whitney followed his brother to Wall Street. They had had an uncle who had been a partner at Morgan. So they were sort of to the manor born um, in, uh, uh, in coming to the street. Both of them were Bostonians. They aren't uh, they're very, 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 very distant cousins, if at all, of the Whitney family we know here in New York, mm. uh, the you know, founders of museums and so forth. But they were um, very powerful, and Dick very uh, quickly got engaged in the um, uh, the volunteer governorship of the New York Stock Exchange. It was a club, basically, run by its members. And he very quickly rose to the board of governors of the exchange, and then um, in uh, on the eve of the 1929 crash, effectively became acting president because the official president had gone on a long honeymoon to Hawaii. Um, and he steered the stock exchange through that horrific period of time. And it made him almost overnight uh, a nationally known figure. He, um, he was one magazine called him the Prince of Wall Street, and he was recognized everywhere he went. He he was seen as the uh, the steady hand on the tiller that had gotten the ship into port after that horrific crash. He relied on that um, uh, celebrity to mobilize the forces of what I call the old guard. In fact, they called themselves the old guard uh, of Wall Street and corporate America to resist the new the New Deal reforms, and by doing so. He helped shape some of those reforms. He um, thought, it was his opinion, that if um, the enforcement of these new laws Roosevelt uh, wanted to put in place was left with the Federal Trade Commission, which at that point was considered a very powerful agency, um, it, it would be very bad for Wall Street. So he pushed behind the scenes for the creation of a separate agency confident that he would be able to capture it and overwhelm it and you know, roll, you know, roll it to the side if it were a brand new little baby agency. Um, so he won that fight. 
um, to, to have a separate agency set up, and it, of course, became the Securities and Exchange Commission. But he was, as I describe, a Jekyll and Hyde figure behind this imposing uh, country squire patrician life was a, a man of no moral content at all. Uh, just to call him ethically challenged is a great understatement. Um, he, was, uh, he was living far beyond his means and doing so with other people's money. And eventually, uh, when that was exposed, it, it, because of how William O. Douglas responded to that exposure, it helped shape the way our, our regulations were framed. So um, he, was he was important both by what he did do and by what he failed to do. One of the striking things about the story is just what an old boys network the financial world was. And as you just said, too, you know, it, it was a club. It seems like all the major characters went to Harvard and belonged to the same clubs, except for Bill Douglas, who went to Columbia and was a Yale professor. But how do you think this clubbiness affected the way the street resisted regulation? Well, uh, first, it's a uh, it's a homogeneity that really only exists on the surface. I mean, um, the the two figures most closely aligned to that model that you know Groton, Harvard, prep school, debutante ball world were FDR and, and Dick Whitney. They they virtually lived parallel lives at the top of America's um, you know informal aristocracy. But um, Joe Kennedy, although he did go to a prep school, Boston Latin, um, and went to Harvard. He, by virtue of being an Irish Catholic, was an outsider in those, in those worlds. He was, he was never seen as one of us by the Dick Whitney crowd. He was always uh, played a, a, a very close hand uh, as he uh, moved as a Wall Street speculator. Um, so he looks on paper like he was part of that club, but in reality he wasn't by virtue of, uh, of his ethnic background. Uh, and even more so for William O. Douglas, for Bill Douglas. He was born in near poverty in the western, uh, in, in Washington state, worked his way through high school, worked his way through college, and then worked his way through Columbia um, with every odd job he could come up with. Um, and it was only when he landed at, at Yale that anyone would ever have thought of him as remotely, quote, Ivy League. And even there, he refused to, you know, he dressed like a cowboy and he refused to abide by the, the Ivy League pretensions. So he, too, was very much like Joe Kennedy, an outsider of, to that very clubby world. But you're absolutely right about the clubbiness of the financial world in general. Um, some of it arose from a common educational background, uh, but a lot of it arose from the simple structures of how stock trading occurred in this country. It, they were clubs. They, these were people who were left, to, who formed their, these organizations and then found themselves facing the task of policing their friends. Hmm. How do you tell your buddy, your good buddy you're playing golf with on Saturday, that he just ripped off a customer? How do you take him to task for that? And it was that very clubbiness, that unwillingness to, uh, to you know, tell tales uh, against your buddies that made the environment so uh, vulnerable to abuse and corruption.
You know, as I was reading the book, one of the things that struck me is it sort of felt like I was reading scenes that looked like something out of a 1930s Hollywood movie about rich people. And as, as I was, you know, the clubs and the scenes and the, the, the country houses. Um, but one of the ones that really struck me with respect to that was, was Joe Kennedy, as you were just talking about. He's probably best known today as the scion of the Kennedy political dynasty. But the some boy, Mr. Kennedy, ends up playing a really significant role in the formation. You know, Go ahead, Ty. He does. He, he, it, I'm, I'm, you know, that's a piece of this book that uh, most readers, that the most feedback I've gotten is from people saying, I couldn't believe Joe Kennedy in this story. Um, we do think of him as the very, you know, sort of cynical, proud founder of a political dynasty. And he was that. But this moment in his biography is perhaps the masterpiece of public service in his life. Um, he, uh, he, he had fumed and fussed with FDR because he wanted to be Treasury Secretary and FDR wouldn't give him that job. Um, and he fumed and fussed with FDR for years afterwards uh, in a disastrous tenure as ambassador to, to Great Britain before the war. But in this moment, they were aligned. What he brought to the SEC was a genius for organization. When he stepped in on July 2nd of 1934, the SEC were words on paper. That was all it was. It was just a statute. And he turned it into a functioning reality almost overnight. It was an amazing act of public service. He also gave this new baby agency some breathing space because Although Wall Street knew that he was a, an outsider, a speculator, a, a, you know, not one of the, their club, to the rest of the world, he looked like a Wall Streeter. Mm. You know? So they said, oh, well, you've set a, you know, a, a fox to guard the hen house here. Um, but he, he was someone that Wall Street could not instantly dismiss as hostile or an enemy of capitalism. He'd made his fortune in capitalism. So he was he was a brilliant choice and a contra ex extremely controversial one, but an absolutely brilliant choice. I want to go back to Bill Douglas. Uh, Bill Douglas is probably best known today as a Supreme Court justice. What was his role in the development of the regulatory structure? Well, he became a Supreme Court justice because FDR was so impressed by what he did at the SEC. Bill Douglas was the most consequential chairman of the SEC in its history, without a doubt. Um, and what, what he did was put steel in the SEC's spine. He, he made it a formidable enforcement uh, operation. He uh, established incredible standards for um, both professionalism and um, fairness. Uh, in its operations. Um, he was brilliant at using the power of public hearings to educate both the public and the press about the work of regulating Wall Street. Uh, his response to Dick Whitney's exposure in 1938 was a masterpiece. It's, it's one of the most exciting parts of the book, but also an absolute masterpiece. Um, he also it, it just worked so incredibly hard. Um, he inherited a bunch of unfinished business from his two predecessors, Joe Kennedy and Jim Landis, who was the second chair, um, and he got it done. He established a rule book for the over-the-counter market, which is now reflected in the NASDAQ market that we know so well. He helped get the, the ball rolling to regulate America's mutual funds, which made uh, mutual funds the best regulated investments uh, in the country. Um, he paid attention to accounting, a little belatedly, but he did uh, start raising the focus on 
on solid independent audits that corporations were required to have. So his his stamp on how we operate today just it's hard to measure. Um, but I I'm simply quoting historians who say that uh, without Bill Douglas, the SEC would never have become what it did. And, and, and sort of that takes us to our, sort of what I think is going to be our last question, which is so much of uh, what investors take for granted today laws on disclosure, laws on conflicts of interest, requirements for outside audits, so much of that seems to have come from this period. How significant were the 30s in sort of creating a model of financial regulation, both from this country and I suspect is being emulated abroad? Yes, it, it, our, our laws were very much the template for the, how the developed capitalistic world did regulate itself in the decades after World War II. How significant was it? We would not recognize the financial landscape today if FDR's programs had not been put in place. I say to, to young people I talk to, I say, you want to know what it looked like before FDR? Look at the cryptocurrency market today. <laughs> There's an unregulated marketplace. How do you like that? Hmm. Um, you know, the disclosure, the, the, your ability to, to uh, trust the reliability of a stock price that you pull up on your phone. That was something that people in the 20s did not have. The, the price might be accurate, it might have been manipulated. Um, the, the presence of independent audits, the, um, the, the guarantee that you've got a, an avenue of redress if your broker rips you off. The simple preservation of your bank savings deposits. The FDIC was a product of these reforms. Um, the, I think it's not an exaggeration to say that the financial reforms that I write about in Taming the Street helped create the American middle class. They gave people a safe way to save, a safe way to invest. They helped put working class and middle class Americans on a level playing field when it came to the, to the financial machinery of this country. And it changed the way people who handle other people's money had to behave. Um, and we, we take it so much for granted these days, it's kind of shocking to me uh, that people don't know, haven't even thought about what it would be like without these reforms. And they, fortunately, the crypto market came along to fill that hole for me. I could just say, well, there's crypto. That's an unregulated market. How do you like it? <laughs> and with that, I have to say thank you for spending time with us, Diana. We've been talking to Diana Rikas about the book Taming the Street, The Old Guard, The New Deal, and FDR's Fight to Regulate American Capitalism. It's a really, really readable and interesting book. Thanks for spending time with us. Founded in 1954, the Association for Corporate Growth has chapters worldwide, representing 14,500 members. ACG serves 90,000 investors, executives, lenders, and advisors to grow middle market companies. ACG's mission is to drive middle market growth. ACG Utah just launched their Women's Professional Network, chaired by Christine Zorick. Christine joins us this morning to talk more about this movement. Christine, thanks for joining us on Mountain Money. Thank you so much for having me today. So excited to be here and uh, really honored to be representing ACG Utah. Well, we're gonna learn all about the organization and let's start with you sharing a bit more about the Association for Corporate Growth. What is it mission and what types of activities does it undertake to accomplish these? Great questions. ACG Utah's mission is uh, to support businesses in the business community. Uh, we're a global brand and we support middle market business deals across the globe. 
specifically our mission at ACG Utah is that we're passionate about driving business growth in Utah by building relationships among capital networks, trusted resources, and the companies they serve. I think one question that I've got that I'd love to make sure that the listeners know what we mean, what does middle market mean? Great question. It's a term that we use uh, within the business community to explain the size of company. So we're looking, you know, anywhere from 50 million uh, to, you know, 200 million. Uh, And we have a lot of CEOs, private equity groups, service providers within our community. And, and just to sort of from a corporate structure perspective, uh, you're a tr- are you a trade association? I mean, uh, t- help me understand a little bit about what exactly you are. Sure. Uh, we're not necessarily a trade association. We are a network uh, that creates a business community for companies, uh, capital networks and investors, uh, the service providers to come together so that they can transact. And a really interesting uh, fact about ACG Utah specifically is that 75% of the companies that are part of this community are doing business with other ACG members. Wow. So so you, as you mentioned, ACG Utah, how long has that chapter been in place? We were an affiliate to ACG Uh, back in the 80s, and we became uh, a chapter in the 2000s. And so we've been around for a number of years. And what's really exciting is that we're, you know, now making efforts to expand out and our reach in Utah through some new networks. And and with regards to that, when I look at membership, what types of roles in the M&A world do these people hold? Um, What kinds of titles would these people, types, types of titles they would have? Sure. Great question. So specifically within M&A and where we're networking in that environment, which is so critical. Relational capital is one of the most valuable assets that anyone in the M&A space can have. And again, when we're talking about private equity roles and titles, those are founders from private equity groups, uh, analysts from private equity groups that, that exist within our community. Okay, I understand you just launched the Women's Professional Network. How will the Women's Professional Network What's the goal here? How do you hope to strengthen women's role in driving business growth here in Utah? Our mission within the Women's Professional Network is really committed and geared towards helping the women of Utah do business together and transact. And so we're bringing together this new network uh, because we have so many women that are relocating into Utah from places like the Bay Area, New York, Boston. And with our ACG Utah WPN, uh, we're giving them a community to initially get grounded and start to build those connections that are so critical in, in them doing business here. You know, the, the sort of startup world in general, and the Valley in particular, is notorious for sort of not promoting, uh, not, not allowing women to have equal opportunities, particularly with funding, op- with funding operations. How do you address, I mean, first of all, do you feel that we see some of that in Utah? I'd be surprised if we didn't. And what are you going to try to do to address that, to try to increase the visibility and the viability of women-owned small businesses as they move into the next stages? I love it. I absolutely love the question. So what we're doing to support that and drive that viability is one, uh, representation. I myself am a small business owner. I founded my firm, White Label Advisors, over four and a half years ago. And by ACG Utah as a chapter, essentially, uh, you know, supporting me and leading out WPN, you know, that's a, a huge statement and, and supportive, um, you know, accolade for this. Additionally, what we're doing is uh, for our 2024 
plan and programming, we are talking to companies and service providers that can help educate the Utah female business community around valuating or valuations for their companies, uh, exit strategies. We were at the We Rock conference hosted by Connect Capital back in September. White Label was a sponsor of that. I was on a panel and also ran a presentation. Um, but what was so interesting is that out of the 16 female founders that were presenting uh, to essentially raise capital, you know, at that conference, only two could speak to the valuation of their company in a way that investors essentially are looking for. And only those two understood what their real exit strategy was. And so we do have a big gap in Utah. And with our programming at WPN, we're looking to essentially educate uh, female founders around that and then give them the support through the capital networks uh, to link them to those investors. So I guess to understand more clearly, with ACG Utah, are your members people who broker M&A deals or are they business owners? Both, which okay. is amazing. You got a yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, we're pulling that entire kind of system, that, that value chain together uh, to help these deals happen and to really support the female founders and the women in business who not only are, uh, you know, starting those companies, but several of the members of our WPN committee are, are in wealth management or uh, one is actually brokering deals. Um, she's with Tower Arch Capital. And so we we have that viability uh, represented on our board at WPN. Yeah, I, I want to go back to something you said about the importance of education in terms of helping female founders in particular understand the way in which data has to be accumulated and arrayed in order to facilitate the ability to attract financing. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What, 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 what is it that they seem to lack and, and how, are you, how are you trying to help them address it? I love that. You know, within our entrepreneurial uh, environment in Utah, I think there are so many people here who are confident in having an idea and taking that idea to market without needing or necessarily having, you know, all of, all of that education or the experience prior to. And so what we're doing from a data perspective is really with ACG, um, we have data resources. One is called ACG Capital Link. And uh, Capital Link is a collaboration uh, with a data platform called PitchBook. And that service has been replaced with collaborations with GF Data, which is an ACG-owned data company, and Grata, which is a data company that provides valuable insight into companies for due diligence. And our female members at ACG Utah will be able to tap into these data resources. That's fantastic. I think my mind is just continuing to expand with the types of uh, resources you're providing. So let's talk about your, I believe this may have been your first Women's Professional Network event last week. Tell us more about this event, and I understand it was sold out. It was sold out. Uh, we could not be more grateful. We were really excited for the momentum that built over the coming months, you know, as we were preparing and announcing but this is, you know, speaks to the, the value of the network at WPN is that just by reaching out and pulling someone in, you know, and welcoming them in, uh, we can really, you know, inspire and empower women uh, to elevate, you know, their careers and their professions within, you know, um, within Utah. And so uh, at our event, um, 
we had phenomenal connection. We had programming in place and it was clear that the women wanted to connect. And as soon as we end, you know, kind of the, the programming, the women immediately turned to each other and networked for the next 45 minutes. Many stayed well past kind of our, our end time. And I, we have, you know, seen already, and this was just three days ago, an increase to our ACG Utah chapter membership, as well as commitments from other women wanting to support on the committee. What, what kind of presentations did you have in terms of the programming? Uh, we were so fortunate to have Christine, uh, who is the ACG global president, and then the ACG regional uh, chapter CEO, uh, share videos with us. Unfortunately, they couldn't make it, but we're planning for them to make live appearances next year. And uh, also Matt Dent, who is the president of the ACG Utah chapter, spoke in support. Uh, and then Shauna Smith, from CEO of the Savory Food Fund Restaurants, uh, was not able to be there uh, due to being under the weather, yet uh, we were able to highlight Shauna's accomplishments and her positive mindset and work ethic, which I think really added a lot of energy to, to the event. So you just referenced that, you know, again, hoping to get them next year. What other types of events are you looking to take place over the next 12 months with regards to the Women's Professional Network? Great question. So education and information, you know, is certainly key, especially around valuations, you know, how to access those capital networks. Uh, additionally, the social aspect is, uh, is really critical to us as well. You know, I earlier on spoke about women coming in from these different cities who are relocating to Utah, whether for work or, you know, kind of remotely enjoying the recreational aspects of Utah. We're in beautiful Park City right now. And so we want to give those women a community through and start building those social connections. Additionally, we want to be active with each other. Uh, so we're looking at, um, you know, activities that we can do that really get us out of the office, help build that human connection. But then also uh, through forming, you know, stronger bonds of human connection, we're now able to network and transact with each other. And, and I understand that leveraging the global network with ACG is one of the, the key member benefits. I understand they recently launched something called ACG Capital Link. What, what is that and what role does it play? I love it. Capital Link is really this phenomenal data resource. Um, it's this platform where we are partnering with Grata and uh, really bringing valuable insights to companies for due diligence. So it's helping women access that data, but also just our uh, ACG Utah chapter members. Uh, it's, it's really a phenomenal resource. Another resource is ACG's Deal Exchange, and it allows members to review kind of current opportunities. I think from when I looked at ACG and all the, the benefits of being a member, it felt like in order for someone to be successful in the mergers and acquisition field, you need to network. Is that is that the best way to say that? Absolutely. You know, we spoke earlier about this kind of relational capital. That's exactly what it's about. And in Utah, we have our own version uh, of this, and we call it the Intermountain Deal Source Summit. And this is where, you know, in Utah, we're distinct and different because ours is more open than private equity because the Utah market is different. And so uh, we're really excited for this event. It's actually going to be in Park City uh, the end of February, beginning of March at Pendry out at the beautiful Canyons Resort. And we would really welcome anyone who's involved in that M&A space, whether, you know, you are a CEO, a founder, or, you know, a capital provider to join us at uh, the Intermountain Deal Source Summit. You, you just said something 
you said Utah's market is different. It is. Give me some more insight as to why we're unique. I think we're unique in that relationships uh, hold more weight here. Uh, and that's why we're, you know, really um, so supportive of this new uh, women's professional network. Um, but then we have this entrepreneurial climate, which I think is really, really unique, and it's a beautiful thing. Um, and and so, you know, pairing kind of that relational capital, the entrepreneurship, um, and then needing to elevate women here were distinctly different. But what I get so excited about is the incredible opportunity to really elevate, you know, all three of those areas. I love that phrase, relational capital. We've been doing a business show a long time, and I don't think I've ever heard that before. I take it that is a fancy word for connections, basically. It's it's the ability to use relationships to facilitate capital investment. Exactly. And I love, you know, sharing it in that way because it really, you know, kind of pinpoints uh, the value that uh, is there. And, you know, if we don't kind of... Um, understand it or, you know, kind of give deference to it in that way. I think we lose on the, the latent potential that's there, but there truly is, you know, value in those connections. And, and one thing, you mentioned this February summit. I wanted to make sure that we, we broke that out just a little bit so that people could understand what it was and if they were interested, figure out how to follow up on it. T can you take it so sort of from the ground up on what's going to happen in February? Absolutely. So we have phenomenal programming uh, where it's a three-day summit. And uh, we have, you know, kind of a... A social hour the night before the summit kicks off just to start to get to know everyone again kind of leaning towards that relational capital uh, and then we have keynote speakers um, a full day of um, conferences, breakout sessions, uh, the Women's Professional Network will even have its very own breakfast uh, and then we do bring, you know, subject matter experts to the stage. Uh, last year, Governor Cox was there. Uh, we had, you know, some really phenomenal PE founders uh, and M&A and strategists. So um, it is, you know, a, a conference where there's a wealth of information, a wealth of connection, and we like to wrap it up with a day of skiing. <laughs> Sounds like a great opportunity, again, for those relation, the, for relational capital. One thing I just wanted to talk about uh, as we start to conclude is just have you discussed the benefit of business owners working on their business, not necessarily always in their business? And it seems like that's kind of the resources you provide. Absolutely. Uh, it's so easy as a business owner to get sucked into the day-to-day -day tactical needs. I don't like to call it minutia because it really is important. But uh, if you don't understand, you know, how to work on your business and at, you know, what inflection points uh, should your business be benchmarked at, you know, kind of for that, uh, that health around the growth, um, you know, you'll, you're really missing out on a lot of the effort and time that you've put in to creating a successful business. Um, even myself, I, I connected with a, a sales consultant and expert, uh, and my firm is now uh, engaged with him uh, because it's helping us understand, you know, from a professional sales perspective, how we should be benchmarking our growth as a professional services firm. That's fantastic. Well, we've been learning quite a bit about the organization, uh, the Association for Corporate Growth, and we have been joined by Christine Zorick to discuss the Women's Professional Network. Christine, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. HotWorks is a virtually instructed exercise program created for users to experience the many benefits of infrared heat absorption while completing a workout. 
How it works, Park City is nestled just north of Smith's and Kimball Junction. Ethan Taylor joins us this morning to share more about this unique business. Ethan, thanks for joining us on Mountain Money. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. So Hot Works, it, 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 it was something that I've never heard or seen before. Can you start by just explaining to the listeners what Hot Works is? Yeah, it's kind of a interesting, unique concepts that has kind of taken the world really kind of by storm. Um, so our big thing is we're a 24 hour infrared fitness studio. Um, something we noticed is that, you know, a lot of people don't have time in their day. They're busy to go in and get an hour workout. Um, and you just don't have a lot of time. And so Hotworks was created to be able to be accommodating for everyone to get the most workout, you know, in the, le- the least amount of time. All right. That term infrared, I don't understand. What, what does that mean? And how does that happen during a workout? The infrared. So as far as saunas go, so kind of in our studio, we've got 10 separate saunas and that's where you do all of your workouts inside of these saunas. Um, and as far as sauna goes, you know, there's a couple different ways to get the heat source. You can have the traditional sauna, like the conventional one, which, you know, you're pouring, you either just crank the heat up or you're pouring water on rocks and it gets kind of muggy. Um, or you can use infrared energy. And infrared energy, not only is it a heat source, it has a whole bunch of benefits to it on like the health side. Um, It kind of penetrates into your cells. And one of the biggest things that we like about the infrared energy at Hotworks is it does a lot of detoxifying. Um, So as you're sweating in the sauna, you're not only just sweating, you know, the water that you're drinking, but you end up sweating out a lot of these toxins that come from the pollution and, you know, just day-to-day living. So you mentioned that you've got 10 infrared saunas. So in my head, I'm thinking of the infrared sauna I see at like my local pool or something like a, like just, I'm, I'm in a, a kind of a wood uh, box, um, you know, with some <laughs> yeah. benches and things. Is that is that what I should be picturing when I imagine going to go work out in one of these? Yeah, it's very similar to that. Um, So they're about seven by nine feet and you know, it's a wooden box, um, but we don't have benches in there um, just to provide the space to be able to work out in there. And we have a TV on the wall in each sauna and the TV plays our virtual instructors that kind of guide and lead you through the workout. And and are there weights or uh, what, what kind of equipment is in there to help you with your workout or is it all sort of body weight? Yeah, so there are two main types of workouts that we have. So, and they're kind of broken up into isometric workouts and our HIT high intensity interval training workouts. Um, and our isometric workouts, these are things like hot yoga, hot Pilates, um, focusing on your core, focusing on your glutes, um, some things like that. And those ones are body weight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're holding different postures. We do have one with resistance bands. Um, but our hit sessions, those are such things like, you know, a hot cycle. We have a sitting elliptical and we have a row machine. Um, and inside those ones, obviously you have those pieces of equipment so that you can work out in. So I'm just making an assumption here, but when I'm working out in an infrared sauna, I'm guessing my workout's not like 60 minutes long. Am I correct? Like how long (laughs) are the sessions while I'm sweating out the toxins? Yeah, you you don't want to go too long because it can get pretty hot. Um, 
And so the isometric workouts, those ones are only 30 minutes long. Um, and our hit sessions, those ones are only 15 minutes long. So they're pretty quick. And with these infrared saunas, um, you know, I, I'm used to kind of a typical gym where I've got a class schedule and I know at noon I've got yoga, one is Pilates. How does it work as far as the types of workouts, what's available in each sauna and am I working out with others in the sauna? Yeah, so the cool thing with us being open 24 seven, right? We have sessions that run literally 24 seven, which is crazy. Um, and so our isometric workouts, they repeat every 45 minutes. So, you know, each sauna is going to be specifically designated for one type of workout. Um, so we could say sauna one has, you know, hot yoga playing in it. And every 45 minutes, a new session will start. And it's the same with the hit ones where just it repeats every 15 minutes. Um, and we have an app that, you know, you can go on through the app and do all your bookings through there. You can either search by the workout you want to do, or you can search by the time that you're going to go and see all the available workouts. Um, as far as working out with other people, that's some, one of the very cool things is, you know, you have the ability to work out with two other people in there. Each of our saunas fits up to three people. And so you have the ability to, you know, bring your friends, work out with people just to be able to help push you. Or a lot of the times, just given the nature of how many sessions we offer, a lot of people are able to just go in there, get a quick workout in by themselves, um, because a lot of people feel more comfortable just being by themselves and not being worried about being intimidated by other people. For sure. And, and I, I get that. And, and the term 3D, I think, comes up. What is, what is 3D training? Yeah, um, it's talking about the three you know, main mechanisms that we use um, or why Hotworks is cool. So the first one um, is heat, right? The second one is the infrared energy and the third one is exercise. So we know that, you know, all three of these separate elements are very beneficial to us. Um, as you're in heat, you know, your body's warming up faster, your metabolism speeds up. Infrared energy, you know, it's helping with that detoxification, with that muscle recovery, and then exercise. Um, you know, you can exercise in a normal place or you can exercise in this heat. And as you combine these three different elements together, it just creates this, you know, this environment where you can burn more calories in a shorter amount of time. There you go. Now, you had mentioned that Hotworks has 24-hour access. And I've got to think, as a business owner, that's got to be pretty difficult to put <laughs> together. I know when we talk with other business owners on the show, finding staffing is difficult. How do you address this 24-hour access with this business and staffing? Yeah, so, you know, as you kind of think of how Hotworks works, um, we have our virtual instructors that are leading and guiding you through the workout via the TVs at each sauna. So we don't have to staff instructors, right? Which would limit us in the am amount of classes we're able to offer. Um, and so every day we're staffed from, you know, 11 to 8 p.m. Fridays are 11 to 6, or excuse me, 9 to 6. And then Saturdays are 11 to 4. So we're staffed for a good nine hours each day. Um, but yeah, the cool thing is because you're able to access it 24 seven, um, we have, you know, our security systems, we have our app, um, 
and through the app on the phone, that's going to connect you to our security door to unlock that so you can get in later when there's no one there. And let's talk a little bit about fee structure. Um, what does it cost and is it, is it, you know, what kinds of memberships do you have? Yeah, this is the best part about Hotworks, in my opinion. Um, it's affordable to everyone. So our normal pricing, we have two different plans, one that can get you access to any location across the country and one that's specific to the Park City location. And the Park City location for unlimited access, you know, as many sessions as you'd like every single day or month, it's just $59 a month, which is crazy. It's so affordable to everyone. Um, and right now, you know, as we're just under construction and getting ready to be opened, um, we're offering all of those discounted even to get people excited about it. So tell us a little bit about your location. Are you open? As you just said, you know, you're kind of ramping up. You're, you, you are a new business in town. What's your timeline? Yeah, um, so we're going over a bunch of construction starting this week, um, and it's going to be flying together. We've got all our equipment ordered, just waiting on standby for the, you know, let's get it installed and ready. So it's coming up quick, but we don't have a set date quite yet. All right, but you are taking memberships and bringing people in. How can they find out more about Hotworks? Where can they find you online and in person? Yeah, so we have our social media. That's Hotworks Park City, Kimball Junction. Um, we have our website. If you, you know, Google Hotworks Park City, we've got our website with a bunch of information, and you can always email or call us directly. Our number is just the 435-351-1004. Um, and that's on our website as well. So if you go to our website, you'll be able to get in contact with us and, you know, find more information. And that's Hotworks with an X, H-O-T-W-R-X, correct? Correct, okay. yeah. That's a good clarification. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we have been speaking with Ethan Taylor. He is the new owner of Hotworks Park City. Ethan, thanks so much for joining us on Mountain Money. Thank you, it was a pleasure. You've been listening to KPCW's Mountain Money. If you like Mountain Money, let us know. Please leave a review.